0: of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled, Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Good morning to you. Good morning. Maybe it's morning when you're listening to this. It is morning for me. It is about 5.51 uh, in the morning, and we are at the beach this week, so I am recording this in the passenger seat of my car, and so hopefully the audio turns out okay. If it sounds a little different today than other episodes, it's because I'm uh, I'm doing the best I can with what I got. So thank you for listening. Um, I've told you before we're gonna kind of jump right in here. I've told you before I used to be fairly apathetic about the Trinity, and as I began to study more. Some of the familiar verses in the Bible came to mind as potential problems with the Trinity, okay? Um, So I would, you know, I thought like, what about when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I? You know, I thought Jesus was equal to God. So why does Jesus say the Father is greater than I? Why does Jesus submit to the Father's will? If Jesus is God, why does he submit to the Father's will? Why does Jesus pray to the Father? You know, if, if Jesus is God himself, why does he have to pray to anybody uh, so I had all these, you know, questions, and then as I started studying the Trinity, I would, I, you know, I love listening to debates, and so as I was listening to debates, I, you know, I, I came across even more questions, concerns. Um, I'll put it in air quotes, problems with the Trinity, and so that's what we're going to talk about in the next few episodes. So the Bible says, you know, like in the debates, what was brought up is the Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, so. You know, I thought God was omniscient, that he they already knows everything. So how can Jesus grow in wisdom? Um, and then when speaking about a final judgment, Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's Matthew twenty four thirty six. So, you know, Jesus doesn't even know, you know, a certain time in the future when judgment will come. You know, shouldn't God know all this stuff? And so, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, did, did God die? If the Trinity actually exists and one person of the Trinity dies, you know, what happens to the Trinity there? So, you know, all kinds of different questions start coming up as you study the Trinity. Maybe you've thought of some of those yourself. Hopefully, in previous episodes, I've been able to explain the basic Christian beliefs about the Trinity. And so if you haven't listened to those please consider going back and listening to those first before continuing with this episode because it certainly builds on things in the in the last two episodes. Here's my basic outline for today. We're going to discuss something called the hypostatic union and then also I will begin addressing some of these objections to the Trinity. And so towards the end of this episode and into next week I'll be talking mainly about the objections to the Trinity. So if you have any questions about the Trinity, please email those in to me. So you can you can email me at bearchristianity at gmail.com. Uh, you can also message me on Instagram at TheRealBearMartin. And then um, also, I, I've done a giveaway recently celebrating 500 downloads for this podcast. That started a, a few weeks ago. And so thank you for all of those people who uh, either shared this podcast on social media or, you you know, sent me in a question, things like that. And I have contacted the winner already. So if you didn't hear from me, I'm sorry, but um, thank you for participating and thank you for listening. Now, the winner of the giveaway actually sent in this question a few weeks ago, and so this will be our question for a bear in the woods today. So uh, here it is. Bear, what's the most overrated or overhyped experience or destination that you visited? Um, So as when I was thinking about this, you know, there's a couple of different ways, things I could say here, but um, this is not really a destination, but certainly an experience. Um, I am going to, I'm going to lose this. (laughs) This is, this is risky here. What I'm about to say, I am probably going to lose some listeners over this one, um, or at least lose a lot of credibility. But I would say one of the most overhyped, Uh, sort of things for me that once I actually experienced it, I was like, "Eh, okay. Um, One of the most overhyped things for me was, (laughs) I'm so nervous, I don't even want to say it. It's Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings um, series or whatever. I I just, I want to like it so bad. Some of my best friends, that's like their favorite books. I, I just know so many people that love it. And I I want to love it so bad. I want to like it, and I just ah, I just can't. I I don't I don't know. There's just something about it where I mean they're okay. I've seen them, and and also you know I have not read the books. But I, so so I realize that there's a lot of of um, people out there like well if you hadn't read the books then you know you got to do that first. It's just a lot of time. I mean they're massive books, and it's just it's just a lot to commit to. So I have read The Hobbit, and then I have seen all of the Lord of the Rings movies. So here's my first sort of the reason I say overhyped is because my first experience. I remember when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, um, and every you know everybody. Well, it, actually, it was just the first one, The Fellowship of the Ring, and I remember everybody was just all you know everybody just couldn't wait to go to the theater to see it or whatever. And so um, I actually saw it, it was already out of theaters, and I saw it at home, and I remember I, it was coming on, I forget what, you know, I, back in the day, before you could just Netflix everything and just watch it on demand whenever you wanted, this was one of those where it was coming on, I knew it was coming on, so I sort of planned ahead to be able to sit down and watch this long movie, right? Right. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I haven't seen it. Everybody's kind of talking about it. So I uh, sit down and watch it, and I knew nothing about Lord of the Rings. I did not know that it was a series. So uh, that's one thing. So I'm expecting this movie to be just amazing. And then they're, like, walking along the spine of a mountain at the end, and it says, to be continued. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, What? Three hours and, you know, we get zero resolution of anything, it seems like. I just, I don't know, I could not, I just couldn't get into it. And so I think it was that initial, you know, experience where I'm like, oh, man, you know, I just I just don't get it. Uh, I think that has sort of carried over to everything else. So when I read The Hobbit, you know, there, there were times, I, I think it was more of me wanting to like it so bad, that uh, there were some enjoyable little scenes, but I just, uh, I don't know. I just can't get into that world for some reason. And so uh, anyway, overhyped, Lord of the Rings, there you have it. That is just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Okay, so let's review just a few things I've talked about in previous episodes. You know, we've talked about being and person so some synonyms there, being, nature, essence, all of those are, you know, kind of mean the same thing. So being refers to what something is, okay? So for example, what are you? The answer to that would be a human being, okay? You have a human nature. Now, person refers to who you are or who something is. So for an example, who are you? You would, you know, typically insert your name there. So What am I? I am a human being. Who am I? I am bear. okay? So the Trinity, the difficult thing about the Trinity, the Trinity is one being of God. So there's only one God. There's one being of God, but three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I've talked about three foundational beliefs of the Trinity. There is only one God. There are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And so if this isn't enough to make your brain hurt, it gets more complicated, okay? So that's why we're gonna talk about the hypostatic union. So the hypostatic union is the belief historically, you know, believed by Christianity, which states that Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So, So Jesus... You know he has a divine nature and is God, but and and also this this divine nature, this God nature that Jesus possesses, is eternal. Okay, he has always been God. He has always been the second person of the Trinity. Uh, in John one one, it says, "In the beginning was the Word." That's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So a few verses later, we are told, however that the word, this is John 1.14, says the word, and again, the word is talking about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So notice here, Jesus became flesh, so he took on a human nature. So Jesus has always been God eternally. He has a, a God nature, a divine nature eternally. But he took on, at a certain point in time, Jesus took on, he became flesh. He took on a human nature. So, Jesus, what what Christians will say about Jesus is, we'll say, Jesus is the God man. He's truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man. So, the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, do not mix. This is really important they do not form some sort of new kind of nature okay so think about like an artist with different colors you've got two distinct colors but then when you mix those colors it becomes a third color that is not what happens with jesus the the two natures are still separate and so he has a divine nature and a human nature he's not some sort of new mixture of and and becomes a, a whole separate uh, being. He he just has those two natures, divine nature, human nature. So this means that the person of Jesus can, because again, it's the hypostatic union says Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature, which he's always had eternally, and he he became flesh. He took on a human nature. So the one person of Jesus can have the attributes of both natures, so Jesus can be omniscient, that means he knows everything, and ignorant. And I, you know, I'm using ignorant in a, um, not in a bad sense, but just um, he, he can learn things, okay? So his divine nature knows everything. His human nature learns. Um, he can be omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, and weak. His divine nature is all-powerful. He's God. His human nature is weak tired, hungry, those sorts of things. Also, Jesus, the one person, can be omnipresent. That means existing everywhere, you know, not limited by space and time. He's God, and so he's omnipresent, but his human nature is limited in space and time. He has a physical body. His human nature contains a physical body. He he walked on this earth, and so in, in that regard, he's limited in space and time. So the one person of Jesus can have both sets of attributes. That's really, really important. And if you need to like pause it and just sort of ponder on that for a second, that's okay. It's it's really important that you get that down. And why is it so important? Well, Jesus as the God-man is able to e- explain God to us. And so like, for instance, a human and a dog are two different beings they you know a human has a human nature and the dog has a dog nature okay so their their beings their nature is different so their ability to communicate is limited for you know try teaching your dog to do your kids math homework you know it's just it's not going to happen and there is an even greater divide between god's nature and human nature therefore our knowledge and communication with God is limited now it 's not limited from god 's end, okay God is not limited he 's not limited in his understanding of us, but we are limited in our understanding of God, and so Jesus, the God man, bridges that gap you know i 've mentioned John one one and John one fourteen and now John one eighteen so at the at the closing of this sort of prologue to john 's gospel, it says this no one has ever seen god then it, then it says the only god or, or some translations and there's there's a there's a lot here but some translations will say the only son so this is talking about jesus here the only god or the only son who is at the father's side he has made him known so basically this is saying jesus who who takes on flesh and becomes the god man we are able to know more about god because of jesus jesus sort of explains god to us he takes on a human form so that he can better explain you know god to us and so that's that's a really important you know aspect you know why is it important that that god um that the second person of the trinity jesus becomes flesh he explains god to us also it's important because mankind needs a perfect man as their substitute for sin. So Romans 5 talks about man having a sinful nature because of the sin of Adam. Now, there's going to be a lot more on this. It's called original sin. We're going to talk a lot more about that in later episodes. But everybody has a sinful nature because of the sin of Adam and Eve. However, we are guilty of sin because of our own sinful desires and actions. Okay, that so... Don't think this idea of original sin somehow excuses you from from your own sin. The Bible never gives us any room to use Adam and Eve as an excuse for our sin. But in Romans five, it says, "Just as sin entered the world through Adam, you know, forgiveness of sin is provided by Jesus Christ." And for you know, even more information on this, see episode or not see, listen to episode four on the Passover lamb and the scapegoat. And there's a lot more on that. Now, you know, so so it's important because Jesus sort of bridges that gap between God and man and helps explain God to us. Also, Jesus, as the God-man, is able to be our substitute for sin. And then also, we can turn to Jesus as one who knows what we are going through in our struggles. Jesus was truly Man, he he lived a a true human life. And so he was tempted to sin. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, sorrowful, he was stressed, you know, he, he was betrayed by a friend, he lost loved ones, he was rejected by his own family. I mean he lived a human life. He is truly God, but also truly man. And so we you know, when we come to Jesus with our own struggles in life. It's not as if he he's just some sort of transcendent god that demands our worship without any sort of, you know, empathy with us. No. The the beautiful thing, the the way that God's love is is demonstrated so much is that God became flesh. Again, John 1:14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so God sort of identifies with us in our struggles. So we have someone we can go to who knows what we are going through. Now, a a major moment for me in discovering the true Jesus of the Bible was realizing this, that Jesus was truly man. Jesus is not like Clark Kent and just sort of pretending to have human emotions. And this is a little bit of a soapbox for me, one, because it was so important in my own life. It, It just, again, it helped explain so many things in the Bible, um, God just became even more beautiful to me, even more loving. All that stuff that I knew about God, it became more real for me when I realized that Jesus is not like Clark Kent. Um, And so, you know, I hear this a lot in discussions, like in small groups. I mean, you know, pastors typically are going to have their theology correct, you know. And so I don't really hear this from pastors, but like when you get around um, people in like small group Bible studies and things like that, and you and they start talking about different stories in the gospel. This happens a lot where uh Christians sort of have this idea this Clark Kent sort of syndrome that you know that everything was just kind of easy for Jesus that he's just sort of going through and he's just kind of pretending to be human, but it's just you know it's kind of simple he's just kind of faking it right. But no, that's not true. Jesus is truly divine. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. So yeah, he walks on water. Um, sometimes you know we we are told that he knew the thoughts of the people around him. Um, Jesus certainly said and did things that demonstrate that he was divine. But just like Christians believe, you know, for instance, Christians will will all affirm that when Jesus healed someone, that that was an actual miracle, that he really healed them. He wasn't just pretending to heal them. It was not some sort of magic trick or illusion. He really was healing them. So they will affirm that he really was God. You know, we Christians have an easy time admitting that, but, you know, I think it's kind of our intellectual laziness. We just we we can't sort of um we don't like to think about it or it's just easier to think about as okay Jesus is god and he's just sort of walking around uh, again like like Clark Kent and Superman but we seem to merge Jesus divine nature and his human nature and so we just say oh it's easy for him no if we affirm that his healing and the miracles are real then we must also affirm that when Jesus wept when when he was sorrowful when you know when he was in agony, praying, you know, Lord, let this cup, let let your judgment pass from me, if at all possible, when he's sweating drops of blood, he's not just faking it. He's not just acting like he's sad when he's really not. No, if we affirm that the the healing, the miracles of Jesus are real, we must also affirm that his human emotions are real emotions. He's fully God and fully man. And so, you know, although we're not doing it on purpose as Christians, we are sort of restricting the, um, the fullness of Jesus Christ in, in what he did and the fullness of God's sacrificial love. The eternal son entered into human flesh. And so, I mean, how great is the love of God for us? The, the most popular verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, you know, this, this concept of Jesus Becoming the God man, but taking on flesh is just it's massive. And so that's why the hypostatic union is so important. Now, the last little part of the episode here, I want to talk about some objections to the Trinity. I'm just going to mention two today, and then we'll get into more in next week's episode. Again, send in those questions if you have any. And I'd be happy to cover those as well if I if I have them in, you know, in time. And uh and so we'll do that. So let's let's start with the first one. You know, before we even start with the objections, actually, let me just share this quote. And I, I've heard it I've heard several different theologians say this, so I don't know where it, it originated, but it's something like this. I mean, they all have the same thing in common. The Trinity solves more problems than it causes. Okay. So a lot of times as Christians, we're like, oh, please don't, you know, if if you're talking to your neighbor or whatever about Christianity, and you're like, oh, please don't bring up stuff about the Trinity because I just I can't cover it. It's too confusing. You know, no, don't think of the Trinity that way. The Trinity solves more problems than it causes. So as we enter into the these objections, there are plenty of other ones where again, if if you take all of the Bible to be true, then you're gonna run into problems if you if you avoid the Trinity, right? Now, as you may be able to imagine, Jesus is the main person of the Trinity about which there are the most objections. And why is this? I think it's because many religions include Jesus as a key figure in their beliefs. You know, But which religion is correct, right? So if Christianity is true, then many other religions are worshiping a false Jesus, a false God. And people do not like to be told they are worshiping a false God. And And actually, I mean, you know, let's give it to People in religions. I mean, you know, I think people are looking f- to worship the true God. They are they are trying to worship the true God, and um, and I think some people are wrong about the God they're worshiping, and so that's why Jesus is a, a huge deal. You've got to get Jesus right. I think Jesus is is probably the most um, the the most challenging person of the trinity, you know, intellectually to kind of wrap our head around. So the first objection that I want to cover is this idea where Jesus says, "The Father is greater than I." Let me give you the specific verse, it's John 14:28. And so the context here, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's encouraging them. This is on the night that he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. So he's encouraging them, he's telling them, you know, I'm I'm getting ready to go away, but I will send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will comfort you, that sort of thing. And so Jesus says this John 14, 28. I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So if Jesus is truly God, and the Trinity states that Jesus is co equal and co eternal with God, then why does Jesus say this? The Father is greater than I. There's a few different reasons for this. You know, one, there's, a, there's two ways of viewing the Trinity. There's the ontological Trinity, which basically the easiest way to think about it is the Trinity as it exists if there was never uh, any sort of creation or anything like that. Just how did God exist in Trinity form, you know, before creation or anything like that in eternity past? Okay, in that sense, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in an equal uh, sort of relationship with each other, and they make up the one true God. Another way of viewing the Trinity is called the economic Trinity, and that is how does the, the persons of the Trinity function in creation, salvation, you know, the different acts of God that we see in the Bible. And so in the economic Trinity, the Father is the one who plans the Son executes that plan, and then the Holy Spirit um, makes application of what the the Father has planned and the Son has done. And so they all three take these different roles, and so the Father is the head of that. The The Son submits to the Father's plan. And so from an economic Trinity standpoint, there are different roles that are taken. However, the three persons of the Trinity are not—they're— um, they're they're still co-equal. Another way of looking at this verse, it says, if you loved me, Jesus is talking to the disciples, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so, you know, basically the Father is exalted in heaven. Jesus is the one who has left heaven, essentially, and and sort of veiled his divine nature, his, his glory that he deserves and taken on human flesh, and he's getting ready to be betrayed and crucified and, and treated in the you know, the worst possible way. And so Jesus is saying, you know, I am getting ready to go back to my Father in heaven and have the glory that I deserve. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going back there because that's when I will be in the fullness of the glory that I deserve. You know, Jesus, just a few chapters later in John, on the same evening Jesus prays this, John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, again, if you're going to read all of the Bible, then all the verse, you have to make each verse sort of make sense with the rest of the Bible. And so, just because Jesus says the Father is greater than I, you can't And this is what critics always try to do. They want to go into these specific little verses, take out a little piece, and then just build everything about their beliefs on that piece. No, what what Christians are trying to do, Trinitarians are trying to do, is to read all of the Bible and then say, okay, the Bible is what God's revealing to us, and so how do we make sense of all of this? And so Jesus, in some instances, says that the Father is greater than I— Yet he he also prays, you know, this book, this gospel is written by the same author. And it's just a few chapters later where Jesus is saying, you know, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So this concept that Jesus is just a, a man, just a prophet, not really God, you know, that sort of thing. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold if you believe all of the Bible. So the second objection here is kind of along the same lines and it's why does Jesus submit to the father's will? If Jesus is God, then he shouldn't have to submit to anybody. And so the specific verse that that's usually talked about is Matthew 26:39. And it says here this is Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. This is right before he's going to be betrayed by Judas and then crucified. And so it says this, And Jesus, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, and cup here is referring to judgment, the wrath of God for sin, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus is saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Why does Jesus, if he's God, submit to the Father's will? Well, Jesus' submission here does not destroy his co-equality with the Father. Again, we're you know, this is where people are mixing up person and nature or or being. So there is one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in their being. What are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? They are God. So what they are is equal. But the the roles that they take in, like the economic trinity, which I mentioned earlier, are different. There there is submission there, but it does not take away from their um, their equality as as being God. Now, I mentioned earlier. I'm going to go back on something I said in a previous episode. I, I I suggested never use any illustration to try to explain the Trinity because they all fall apart. And and that they They do all fall apart at some point there's nothing that perfectly can be used to explain the Trinity. however, since I've said that've <laughs> I've heard actually lots of um different teachers that i that I really like um like that i've I've been listening to you know different podcasts and things like that just I've heard a lot of them say you know it's okay to use an illustration, just make sure that you specify this is not a full explanation right so that's what I'm going to do here. This is not a full explanation of the Trinity, but when we think about Jesus submitting to the will of the Father and how it does not diminish his his equality as God, then think about this, a CEO and a secretary, okay? Now, the CEO and the secretary have different roles in that company, and so you could argue Well, actually, I mean, a lot of times, shoot, the secretary is probably more valuable than the CEO. But you know, just go with me here. The CEO—you could argue that the CEO is the is the most valuable person in that company, okay? And then the secretary, not so much. And so there are different roles there, but the CEO and the secretary are equal in their value and dignity as a human being. And so, if someone were to murder the CEO, or the secretary, their punishment should be the exact same, no matter which one they murdered, because both of them are human beings and deserve an equal amount of dignity and respect and value, and so what they are is human beings, and in that regard, they are equal, but who they are, the you know, the CEO and the secretary, that they are not equal in those roles. The secretary should submit to the CEO if the CEO says, you know i want you to call this person and schedule a meeting then a good secretary would do that and so there there is some submission there but it does not mean that they are not equal in their being so hopefully that helps explain you know why why jesus submits to the father's will it it all has to do with the economic trinity and this is really important the father the son and the holy spirit freely chose the roles that they would take in the creation of the world, the salvation of mankind. It, so it is a it is a free submission. Jesus willingly humbled himself to the Father's will. We talked about Philippians 2 in a previous episode about the deity of Jesus Christ. And so he's equal with God, the Father, yet humbles himself and, and is obedient to the Father's will. And so that's that's how you would answer these. Now, hopefully... As we've discussed these two objections to the Trinity, hopefully you were already sort of thinking along the same lines that I was, you know, uh, given the explanations I gave earlier in the episode. So hopefully you're starting to see, okay, this is how we make sense of of a lot of these sort of, uh, again, in air quotes, problem passages in the Bible when we're thinking about the Trinity. So I really hope that helps you out. More objections to the Trinity will be covered next week, so make sure you send in those emails. And then for a closing verse, this is one of the main things I'm going to cover next week. This was a, a big verse for me as far as objections to the Trinity. And, and at, when I first read this and was thinking about it, I was like, man, this is this is kind of troubling. Why in the world would would Jesus say it like this? It's Mark 10, 18. And Jesus said, this is to the rich young ruler. And uh, he, he, basically the rich young ruler comes up and says, good teacher. And then, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this, why this is Mark 10:18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would Jesus say that?